talk about, but I don't know why it was impressed upon me while we were just worshiping together, is that somehow you and I wouldn't be mesmerized by glitz and glamour, but somehow the Lord would stamp eternity on our eyelids through his written word. And that there would be something of a breath of life that would fill our lungs as we encounter him through the scripture. And not just because you hear somebody else cleverly speak words. And, and sometimes I, I'm grateful. Our generation has very gifted communicators. But I, I also fear for us because we have gifted communicators that somehow, like John the Baptist, you know, it says of him in John 5, 35, that he was a burning and shining lamp. Jesus said this of him, that he was a burning and shining lamp. And then it says, and you were willing to rejoice in his light for a little while. And we love that verse. He was a burning and shining lamp. And we all want to be burning and shining lamps. But the majority of us are simply just the people who are simply willing to rejoice in somebody else's light for a little while. And we don't have something of a burning heart on the inside of our lives that then doesn't shine outwardly. And my fear for us sometimes is that we would be inch deep in the revelation of God, but gifted which is a dangerous place for our generation to be, even working with young people primarily in their 20s. I see gifted people, and I think, man, they're so gifted that it sometimes terrifies me because we can get away from just get by with the gifts and the callings that God has given to us. And sometimes we don't actually have the depth of revelation. You and I both need the precious gift of Ephesians 1, a spirit of wisdom and revelation and knowledge of Jesus. And sometimes in the prayer movement particularly, we can get really familiar with these prayers that we pray from the Scripture in Ephesians 1 and then forget the reality that this is actually a gift from above. That this is actually not just words that sound nice to pray, that Paul prayed for the church of Ephesus, but that you and I, especially in a place like Boston, especially in a place like New England, where we can boast of our intellectualism, yet at the same time we're blinded because we don't have a spirit of wisdom and revelation and the knowledge of Jesus. And this alone will bring deliverance to a generation. This alone, that revelation burning on the inside of your hearts will alone bring the revelation. So this isn't even what I want to talk about, but I want you guys, even as young people primarily in this room together today, is to get familiar with the book that we have in front of us. It's words of life. Sometimes, and I, I, I get it, sometimes the Bible is a little bit, uh, let's be honest, you and I, sometimes we can fall asleep while we read the Bible, and I get that. The issue isn't that the Bible is boring, though. The issue is that we don't have a spirit of wisdom and revelation. In other words, the issue isn't that the Bible is boring. The issue is that you're boring. And that we cannot comprehend the most beautiful man with the most magnetic personality that has ever walked this earth. You know, even the issue of following Jesus isn't so much so that you don't suffer in the next age or when your life passes, but that even, now hell does exist, but even if it didn't, is that there is still a man so beautiful with a personality so magnetic that you would follow him. Not because you're afraid, but because he's attractive. I think of the first apostles, his 12 disciples, and those who followed after him, it says he, would, he just walked up. I mean, Stephen talked about him so beautifully yesterday, but he would just walk up to them. He'd walk up to fishermen, Peter and Andrew, and he'd say, come and follow me. You're fishers, you're fishermen, but I will make you fishers of men. And it says immediately they left their nets and they followed him. Like, most of us, we're, we're still arguing with him. Like, really? Should I follow you? Like, at every level of my life, should I follow you? Are you really worth following in this sort of way? Really, all these things. And then we read in Corinthians, he who knew no sin became sin 
don't even understand that. That we might become the righteousness of God in him. You see, what it means is essentially Jesus is saying, listen, all of me for all of you. And somehow most of us are still arguing about the exchange rate. Somehow we think, no, 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 that must mean I'm getting the short end of the stick. It's somehow we haven't seen actually that the branch of the Lord is actually beautiful and glorious. That this root springing forth from the ground had no comeliness about him, but yet somehow this man is the most beautiful man, the man that we follow. And here's the thing. The way he chose to reveal himself is through the written word of God. The way in his infinite wisdom and infinite sovereignty that somehow he decided, listen, I'm going to reveal myself through you primarily two ways. I'm going to give you a, my spirit that lives inside of you that most of us don't even know how it works. And we never access the power inside And then he gave us a book. We are a people of the book. Psalm 119. I'm not going to talk about this. I'm going to move on. But Psalm 119, the psalmist cries out, open my eyes that I may see wondrous things from your law. There's no, like, hyperbole in Scripture. They don't exaggerate. It's inspired by the Holy Ghost. He says, I am a stranger on the earth, but do not hide your commandments from me. Anytime, when you read Psalm 119, just because it's harder for, these words have meaning, but when you read precepts, commandments, law, all these different things, just put your word. I'm not like changing the Bible, I promise. (laughs) I'm a stranger on the earth, do not hide your word from me. And then he says this, he says, my soul is crushed with longing for your judgments or your word at all times. When was the last time your soul was crushed with longing for his word at all times? Crushed with longing for his word at all times. Do we know this man? Do we really know him? Isaiah 66, heaven is my throne and earth is my footstool. Where then is a house that you will build for me? And he answers the question. He says, to this one will I look. He who is humble and contrite. And then, what's the next part? Trembles at my word. When's the last time you opened your Bible up and you trembled? Something of a tremor. Your heart, it, it almost races as you begin to read the Scripture. You see, part of our problem is we approach the Bible like we approach every other book. In fact, we don't even approach it like we approach every other book. Some of us race to read books that men have written. Yet we fear opening these pages that alone have words of life. So I, I, I don't want us to be clever. I want us to be deep. I, won't, I don't want us to have pet doctrines. Paul says, I did not shrink back from preaching the whole counsel of God to you. It's not even about movements or streams or tribes and different revelation that was given to different people. I want to know everything. Everything that I can know about God, not so that I can tell you, it's so that when I see him on that day, he's not unfamiliar to me. It's so that when I see him on that day, I actually know who he is. He's not a stranger. This is essentially what what Stephen was, was talking about yesterday. Even knowing the man Christ Jesus, that we have to familiarize ourselves with him so that we're not shocked on that day when he reveals himself in the twinkling of an eye and we see him and we're thinking, who is that guy? How many of us, it's who is that guy? But it's through the written word. And so this my, my prayer, my prayer for this weekend, my prayer even for this time, this, this afternoon, is it would be 
may be something of a Matthew 13 moment for us, that somehow there would be a sell all that he has to buy the field. See, like more than anything that I care about when, when I stand with friends and we get to worship God together, it's not so much that I get to recruit you to what I believe God is doing in this day and hour, and I believe he's doing a lot of things, and I do want to recruit you, but it's not my primary thing. Sometimes I do pray the prayer, Lord, whatever else they're doing, just make them forget it. I pray dangerous prayers when I come to these places. I pray whatever else they're doing, Lord, make it seem like rubbish compared to what you're doing. But really, my prayer is simply this, is that we would really be Christians. It's, it's forget everything else that we would talk about, is that we would actually, actually be disciples of Jesus. Like, I could tell you today, let's talk about missions and unreached peoples and Muslim, Buddhist, Hindu nations, and all these sorts of things. And I'm sure we could get really excited about going to preach the gospel in all these places. But I promise you, if we actually believed what he said in the Bible, it wouldn't take that much to convince you that God is doing something in your generation. The problem is, so many of us, there's a fog over our eyes, and it needs to get lifted. And so my prayer, it just hear me, because I might say things that you don't like today, but really it comes from a place, I want to be your friend. But more than I want to be your friend, I hope Jesus has friends in this place. And so my hope, you might not like some of the things that I say. I, I always have a few naysayers, and, you know, I could probably say it better. I'm not the most eloquent person. But at the same time, it's forget how I say it. But if it's true, it doesn't matter. And so actually to this morning, or this afternoon, I kind of wrestled because I'm like, oh, it's like Boston. Like, I don't really want to talk about these things. Really, really what I want to challenge us today is to prepare for suffering. I know it's weird. I know already it's weird. And, and it's like, well, I've suffered. No, I'm talking about suffering for the gospel. And, and I know that's even where well, all my rights are being taken away from me, this political election, all these things, whatever. I don't even care about that for a minute. Let's just think about this for a second. You start reading the New Testament, and you start seeing a faith that's altogether foreign to us. And somehow I want to make the mistake, or forget the mistake. Let's, let's be more generous. I want to make the excuse that somehow that was a different time and a different context. And so I don't really want to say that that really applies to me. But I'm just going to read a few verses to you here. Because I just want to say this. The fact that, yes, in America we are not necessarily right now suffering for the gospel is a historical and even contemporary exception and not the norm. I know in our own worlds, we think this is what is normal Christianity. For the majority of the world, even today, to be a Christian costs something. To be a Christian requires something. I look at my own life. I'm be honest with you. Like I'm, I'm, I'm talking to you. But the reason I talk about this so much, whenever I travel or with our own people, is mostly because I need to to remind myself of things. Regularly, I'm with my wife, and we'll. I, I remember one time I come out of this birthday party, and with some of our most dear friends that we love, they're like the real deal Christian. But at the same time, I leave these things, and something still feels amiss. It feels lacking, and I think. Lord, if this is what life is, I'm not sure. If this is what Christian life is, the life of faith is supposed to look like, I'm not sure this is what I want entirely. Because I think there's something more that, that it's not because I'm like trying to earn something. You have to hear this right. It's because I see actually how beautiful he is and I'm thinking, surely, surely it's worth more than I'm giving right now. 
Surely his life is worth more than I'm giving right now. But for most of us, we're so apprehended with what my calling is. What? God, what do you want from me? What do you want from me? What kind of career am I supposed to have? What kind of salary am I supposed to pursue? And I'm not saying that these are all necessarily bad or evil things. They're not. But then I look and think, what, you really want a prophetic word from God? Let's talk about the Apostle Paul. You want to be like the Apostle Paul. We all, right? Follow me as I follow, follow Christ. Imitate me as I imitate. Like, all these things. I, I, I want to be like the Apostle Paul. You know what his prophetic calling was? Acts 9. Read it later. Still look at me. Acts 9. He says, listen, he's going to show the Gentiles, the kings, and my people, the Jews, Great things. He's going to speak the great things about God. And then he says this, and really tell him this, Ananias. Because Ananias is like, I don't really want to do this. Don't you know he has permission to kill me? And then God says, no, no, but tell him this. Tell him about all the ways that I've prepared for him to suffer. You, you want it to be like, well, tell him all the ways that I've prepared the plans I have for you. I know the plans I have for you. Right? Jeremiah 29. You know why you read it that way? It's because you read it out of context. We don't know our Bibles. For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord. Plans to prosper you, not to harm you. I'm talking about Israel there, by the way. But anyways, we'll just keep moving on. And so... The Apostle Paul, he got a personal prophecy, a good one. It's written in the Bible. And it's like, you're going to have this most amazing apostolic ministry ever. And you know what the apostolic ministry is going to be? It's going to suffer. Most of us were like, Lord, make me a leader. I'm thinking anybody who prays that prayer has never been a leader. If you pray that prayer, it's a good prayer. He says, if anyone desires to be an overseer, it's a good thing. But I'm thinking, once they are an overseer, they're praying, why did I pray that prayer? <laughs> How many of us need to be loose from the tension of a grasping hand? And somehow in our American way, we just think, it's, it's my right. You realize even for some of you in, in, in church and church finding, it's just a foreign concept. Do you realize that most of the world, they don't get to pick the church they attend on Sunday? There's only one, and it has a lot of problems too. You realize that? Like somehow, well, the church doesn't serve me. glad I'm not a pastor in a church. I, I'd go to jail probably. Like, what are you talking about? Serve me. Sorry, Bethany. I hope they still come on Sunday. But like, what are you talking about? I hope they serve me. They don't serve me. Like, how many times? Oh, I don't feel fed there. Are you kidding me? Somehow in our American, especially millennials, especially us, somehow we think that self-expression is the greatest, greatest ideal for us to pursue. You know what the Bible says? It says your life is not your own. I am a bondservant of Christ. I belong to somebody else. Like, really? It's like, no, I, I didn't get to play the bass guitar. They don't give me a chance. Yeah, because you stink. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> like, but seriously, seriously, the things that we argue about and the glory we miss because all we see is a common plant when God sees a burning bush. 
I think there's something for us that we simply, we simply don't see these things. Why? It's because we, even in our Christian faith, we think there's a right that I have to pursue. When Jesus is saying, no, not really. All of me for all of you. And that might mean you're under stinky leadership. That might mean you don't get to do it the way that you want to. Not Bethany and Daryl. They're not stinky leadership. That's not on time. But, you know, your other home church, you know. And so, like, <laughs> I'm just kidding. Come on, guys. We're friends here. Like, I, like, sorry. Forgive me. I just think when we read the scripture, we, we read it because we want to read it in a way that kind of tickles our ears and, and tickles our fancies, so to speak, and, and makes us feel a certain way and makes us believe a certain thing about ourselves. When really all that God is trying to do is to get you to just see how beautiful he is so that you sell all that you have and that you buy the field. The issue to me here isn't what is my right you got none. But it's freeing. When you have no possession to call your own, you know how, oh, I'm trying to get to my thing. Okay. Oh. Sorry, technology, slow. I'm just going to read this to you for a minute. This isn't like a Christian, all right? So this is, Billy Graham read this letter, Urbana, I think in like 1950-something. This is when the height of the Cold War, communism, and he says he got this letter. And it was a letter that was given to him to explain to his fiance, or this person's fiance not Billy Graham, this other person, why he had to break off their engagement. He's a communist, okay? And he says this, American. He says, we communists have a high casualty rate. We're the ones who get shot and hung and lynched and tarred and feathered and jailed and slandered and ridiculed and fired from our jobs and in every other way made as uncomfortable as possible. A certain percentage of us get killed or imprisoned. We live in virtual poverty. We turn back to the party every penny we make above what is absolutely necessary to keep us alive. We communists don't have the time or the money for many movies or concerts or T-bone steaks or decent homes and new cars. We've been described as fanatics. We are fanatics. Our lives are dominated by one great overshadowing factor, the struggle for world communism. We communists have a philosophy of life which no amount of money could buy. We have a cause to fight for, a definite purpose in life. We subordinate our petty personal selves into a great movement of humanity. And if our personal life seem hard or our egos appear to suffer through subordination to the party, then we are adequately compensated by the thought that each of us in his small way is contributing to something new and true and better for mankind. There is one thing in which I am in dead earnest, and that is the communist cause. It is my life, my business, my religion, my hobby, my sweetheart, my wife and mistress, my bread and meat. I work at it in the daytime and dream of it at night. Its hold on me grows, not lessens as time goes on. Therefore, I cannot carry on a friendship or love affair or even a conversation without relating it to this force with both, which both drives and guides my life. I evaluate people, books, ideas, and actions according to how they affect the communist cause and by their attitude toward it. I've already been in jail because of my ideas. And if necessary, I'm ready to go before a firing squad. Now, here's the thing. Revelation 12 makes it really clear. There is coming a people. 12.11. And it says this of them, that they've overcome by the blood of the Lamb. By the word of their testimony. And we like that part. And then it says this. And they love not their lives, even unto death. At what point does our faith become more than just a crutch, like Stephen was talking about last night? 
At what point does our faith become less about what it provides for me, and it does, and more about what he told us it would be about? Denying ourselves, taking up our cross, and following after him. See, so much of what we even dream about and what we think about and and what we're challenged to pursue, even in our faith, how often does it look like what Jesus talked about when he said, if anyone desires to be a disciple, my disciple. Just read those passages. Read the, if anyone desires to follow after me passages. And you realize this isn't like a game. (laughs) It's not even a part-time sort of thing. It's all day, every day. Doesn't mean that we're not going to have fail, we're not going to make mistakes, we're not going to fall, we're not going to need help at different times, we're not going to need our brothers and sisters to surround us and get us through these things, but there is something of a totality that Jesus demands. You don't even like that word, some of you, demands. There's something that Jesus requires of us, not for your salvation. We are saved by faith through grace in, and in Christ alone. Absolutely. But here's the thing. So many of us, we think, well, Jesus died on a cross so that I don't have to. And that is absolutely true. If you thought I was going to say false, then you'd call me a heretic and you'd be right. Jesus died on a cross, yes, so that you and I don't have to. But you know what it else tells us in 1 Peter 2? Really clearly, it says he also died on a cross to show us how we could. Not just so that we wouldn't have to. The thing is, most of us in our Christianity think, well, Jesus guarantees certain things for us. He makes me feel a certain way. And suddenly it becomes all about us. And in some ways, yes, it is. Like some people who say, well, it's not about you at all. It's only about the glory of God. You know, you're a good Calvinist. Good for you. Yes, in our lives, we're, it's to make much of Christ. Everything is about, yeah, it is. But here's the thing. He also makes much of you. He sent his son. Yes, there is something about you that is phenomenal. So I don't like walk away while you're from here and think, well, Brian thinks I'm, you know, insert something. No, we're amazing because we bear his image. But there's a way we're supposed to live and walk when we bear that image. First Peter 2, it says, he died to leave an example that we might follow in his footsteps. And if you know the context of both Petrine letters or First uh, and Second Peter, the whole thing is about to prepare a church to bear their own cross, their own persecution. I'm going to read a few verses to you, and my bro with the Bengals hat is going to help me. Bro, how do you wear a Bengals hat in Patriots country? I'm glad you do, though. Tom Brady's the worst. Sorry. You're welcome, Daryl. Anyways, John 15, 20. Remember the word that I said to you. A servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. But if they kept my word, they will also keep yours. 1 Thessalonians 3. Read it together. Maybe. Just kidding. No one should be shaken by these afflictions. For you, know, you yourselves know that we are appointed to this. It's talking about suffering. You thought, well, this must be a thorn in the flesh or the devil. And maybe it is, but you're still appointed to this. For in fact, 
We told you before when we were with you that we would suffer tribulation just as it happened and just as you know. That's a different way of saying it. 2 Thessalonians 1, verse 4 and 5. So that we ourselves boast of you among the churches of God for your patience and faith in all your persecutions and tribulations that you endure, which is manifest evidence of the righteous judgment of God, that you may be counted worthy of the kingdom of God for which you also suffer. There's another prophetic promise. 2 Timothy, verse 3, and this is maybe the one that gets me more than anything because he makes it a universal thing. He says, yes, and all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will suffer persecution. Yes, or let's say it this way. Yes, and everyone who wants to live a godly life in Christ Jesus, will suffer persecution. Everyone who desires to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will suffer persecution. I'll just leave it there for a minute. I now rejoice in my sufferings for you and fill up in my flesh what is lacking in the afflictions of Christ for the sake of his body, which is the church. Philippians 1, 21, verse 29, For to me, to live is Christ and to die is gain. For to you it has been granted, or it has been gifted, on behalf of Christ, not only to believe in him, but also to suffer for his sake. Acts 9, verse 16, what we were talking about earlier. For I will show him, Paul, how many things he must suffer for my name's sake. That's a nice prophetic word. See, here's the thing. We were talking, my wife and I, we were talking just why Christians believe certain things and why are we a certain way and how could our nation come to this and all these kind of big, I guess, kind of national existential questions, you know? It's like, why is it this way? Why is America this way? Or all these kinds of things. And all I could think of is in Matthew 10, Jesus says this, if they hated me, they're going to hate you too. Time out. He said, isn't it about like taking mountains and gaining a lot of influence to influence culture and society? Well, Jesus said, if they hated me, they're going to hate you also. He's not playing the same game we're playing, by the way. Sometimes we think he's playing on the same realm. No, 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 no. The kingdoms of this world will become the kingdoms of our God. He's not playing the same game we think we're playing. Just get it straight. The kingdoms of this world is not his kingdom. <laughs> I'm just going to leave that there. <sighs> okay. So he, if they hated me, they will hate you also. Listen, Christianity isn't a popularity contest. It's not a beauty pageant. It's about all-out surrender to who he is. That's all Christianity is about. It's not about you getting your way or what it looks like in our generation. Your faith, what your faith demonstrated looks like is total surrender. More than anything else, more than you taking over or you winning something or playing this sort of game and thinking you've won and you've gained a lot of influence and now we're influencing society and culture. That is good and we should do that. We are salt and light for sure and all these sorts of things. We pray for kings and all those in authority that we may lead a godly and peaceable life. Yes, we do all of these things because he tells us to, but listen, your success is only rooted in the fact that you are totally surrendered to who he is. It has nothing to do with your 401ks or your influence or your giving capacities or your, your power and authority that you have to move men and to do certain things. Sometimes we make it about that in our Christianity and everything else is about an inside-outside, upside-down kingdom. You lose, then you win. You go down, and then he exalts you. Sometimes we think, 
I need to have kind of influence, and then we think, well, I must not really be following God. No, 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 listen. Your Lord, our Master, our Savior, our beautiful bridegroom, whatever you want to call him, our King, all these he died on a cross, naked. And yes, he's coming on that day, triumphantly, but in the meantime, he's left us an example. When are we going to get it? He's chosen the foolish things, the weak things. And then we think, yeah, yeah, for a minute so that then I look awesome. It's always the, yeah, 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 but then it gets really good, right? No, the fact that you're totally surrendered to him is where it gets really good. You're totally free. You know what that looks like? Opinions don't matter anymore. You know how many of us? We're captive to other people's opinions. I, I, social media terrifies me. Who cares how many people follow you? Who cares how many likes you get? Nobody gives a something. <laughs> Nobody gives a like. That's what I said. What were you thinking? Jeez. Nobody cares. Except you do. Some of you, your whole lives, tailspin. Based off of other people's opinions. Terrifying. I want to stand before him on that day and say, Lord, it was all surrendered to you. It's like, what, you're going to come and say, look, look, look at all my marbles, God. Look what I accumulated. There's something of all-out surrender that I think even this issue of suffering, you're thinking, well, why is he talking about suffering and also all about these other weird things, you know, like he's trying to make me feel bad. No, I'm not trying to make you feel bad. He, I, I just say this, could loving not our lives even unto death meet that, mean that some of us, if not many of us, will actually have to give up our very lives to death before this is all over for the sake of authentic love? What did Paul mean when he said that all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will suffer persecution? If the choices that the apostles made that caused their suffering, even death, seem so foreign to us, do we actually know what true apostolic Christianity is? When I say apostolic, just think New Testament, early church. That's what I mean when I say apostolic, not you being awesome. Are we willing to give all, including our reputations and our lives, in order to gain Christ? Something has got to give in this generation to reverse the culture of easy believism, comfort, and convenience that would have been so unrecognizable to the early church where they were more accustomed to trials, tribulations, persecutions, and even martyrdom for the sake of the gospel. Persecution, suffering, and martyrdom is not some morbid response to Jesus, but a glorious offering up that puts the eternal and matchless worth of the Lamb on display as we suffer joyfully and go to our deaths for the sake of him who gave all. This is what Leonard Ravenhill said. He said, the early church was married to poverty, prisons, and persecutions. Today, the church is married to prosperity, personality, and popularity. What does this mean for us, for a different pathway altogether that we're supposed to walk on? It's the Via Dolorosa, so to speak, the pathway of the cross. It's not jewelry. It's not something simply to, I like that. That's cool, too. But it's not something to wear around your neck or anything like that. There is a way. There's a pathway that he laid out for us called the way of suffering. And this sort of idea is, is even what, what I think of, even when we call people to the missionary life. It's not so that you can fulfill some sort of grand objective that I think God has given to me. It's not because I feel like I have some sort of prophetic word that I'm supposed to call missionaries to X, Y, Z. Though I do feel that maybe. But that's not even the point. You know what the point is? It's for your deliverance. 
Amy Carmichael, she said, missionary life. You know Amy Carmichael? She's my favorite missionary ever. She, she was a missionary to India, lived a long time ago from Ireland. I say England in this video. I'm, Troy always corrects me. Troy's my armor bearer in the back there. But uh, just kidding. I don't actually have an armor bearer. I just like calling him that. But, but just this idea that, you know what she said? She says, missionary life is simply a chance to die. You know, I like to, like, make that a little nicer. To me, missionary life is simply a chance to be a Christian. Why? It's because all the accoutrements, all the side issues, they suddenly get nullified, and you think, is my faith really real? Is he really worth this? You see, people think, well, you don't care about America. You just want to send missionaries all over the world. And, you know, doesn't America need? Yeah, America needs God. That's why we send missionaries all over the world. Why? Because maybe, just maybe, one of them's going to see a breakthrough that's going to arrest the attention of our generation, just like Hudson Taylor did in his day, and Amy Carmichael. And they might actually believe our faith is possible. We really can live out Christianity in our day. It's my prayer with mission. Like you think, well, I don't care about, no, no, it's because I love America. I'm sending missionaries all over the world. Why? I'm hoping, Lord, just one, just let one of them break through. Where they think it's impossible to see breakthrough. And maybe, maybe their attention will be arrested. Some young kid sitting in, in Boston University suddenly reads this story, and all of a sudden, all of a sudden, their affections are arrested. They're fascinated. Maybe this is really actually possible. What would it look like? That decision-making process. The missionary life, you know what it does? It just makes the decision-making process really easy. Because sometimes we think, oh, I'm just living this out and, you know, trying, da, 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 da. No, 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 no. Leave everything behind. No comforts. Nobody. Here, here's the thing about missionary life. You think, well, I'm going to be a missionary because I'm going to be famous one day. You know what the truth is? You're mostly going to be forgotten. Even by your best friends, they're no longer going to think about you. And some of them, well, it's this idea, I can't be forgotten. You have a fear of being forgotten. Except, you know what uh, Count Zinzendorf said? He says, preach Christ, die, and be forgotten. That's your purpose in life. Preach Christ, die, and be forgotten. Because it's not about you anyways. Yeah, like Jason Upton said, you're just another dying star too. There's only one morning star of glory. And so somehow we, we make Christianity, we, we've, we've Christianized the American dream. We say, yeah, I'm not about money, yeah, I'm not about status and all these other things, except you're on the same stinking hamster wheel. You know nothing except upward mobility. You know nothing of what Henry Nouwen calls downward mobility. What does it look like to lose everything? You realize the gospel isn't about you winning everything and you gaining everything? Everything in the New Testament is about you lose your life to find it. And most of us, we're just grasping. Lord, let me keep this. Let me keep that. Let me keep this too. My reputation, Lord. My money. My education. It's all rubbish. That's what Paul called it. That's what missionary life, and some of you think, well, yeah, my life is sold out. I'm going to be, da, 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 da. and really what you're thinking is, I just want to be really famous. Let's be real here. It's sick. It's sick. I'm serious. It's sick. Even our Christianized version of the American dream, it's still sick. My hope with missionary life is somehow purified, sovereign, chosen vessels of God. I'm going to do this for God. Yeah, you just want to get on some sort of preaching circuit. No, nobody cares. You're not that good, I promise. 
not trying to be mean. I'm thinking, are you kidding me? Like, who cares about half the things, more than half the things we even care about? We stand before him, it's going to burn up on that day. That's all missionary life is to me. This is my call. <laughs> it's, I know it's kind of a, a really roundabout way of, of calling you to be missionaries. It's so that you're a Christian. Yes, this is what I tell people, though. They say, well, are you saying you can't be a Christian in America? No, I'm not saying that. I'm just saying the person who lives Christianity in America, to me, is going to be the realest Christian we've ever known. If you actually live out the, your faith in this context, seriously, you are the most real Christian I will probably have ever met. That's how hard it is in our culture. I, I hope you do. Someone's going to break the sound barrier, and then we're all going to be ashamed. Someone's actually going to take what the Bible says at face value, live it. And then on that day, we're all going to sink, sink into our own shame. Missionary life is a crutch. <laughs> you think missionary life is hard. No, it's a crutch to me. It just tries to get you there faster. That you would die to yourself. Your own dreams and your own ambitions. If I was talking to a room of missionaries, I'd tell them totally different things. I'd tell them, stop thinking you're so awesome because you live overseas. You're not that awesome. I'd tell them, just because you got on a plane and live somewhere else doesn't make you a missionary. Just so we're clear here, don't think I'm just equating. No, no, we all have to live our faith a certain way. To me, my call is simply this. Be a Christian. Forget all the other titles and labels and whatever callings that you think you have. Just be a Christian. Don't tell me about this movement or that movement or what God is doing this way or that way. Just be a Christian. You realize, well, there's so many different streams. Yeah, yeah, yeah. There's only one head. His name is Jesus, and we all fit into it. And we have to be a Christian. Like, this is the call for our generation. It, 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 forget everything else. Forget everything else. Leave it all behind or sell all you have. Buy the field. I promise Jesus alone is the only one worthy of your affections. Think about all the other things you give your affections to. It's really not worth it. You know what the Bible says? It says on that day we're all going to cast our crowns down anyways. Every time. Oh. The living creatures, the angels cry out, holy. The elders, they fall down and cast their crowns down anyway. They're the ones sitting on the thrones. Most of you will never sit on those 24 thrones. Don't think you're going to rotate and get a chance. You're not. And even those guys have already cast their crowns. Every single time the four living creatures and the angels cry out, holy! And you think your personal calling in God is more important than that man sitting on the throne. It's not. You're not that awesome. I said you're awesome earlier. You're not that awesome. Only Jesus is the branch of the Lord, beautiful and glorious, and he promised he's going to reveal him. The Father's going to reveal him on that day. I'm praying some of you are familiar with him today, so you're not surprised on that day. Because that's a scary day. Depart from me, I never knew you. We don't like talking about those verses. Or the love of many will grow cold. That should terrify us far more. They're missing our personal destinies. I didn't get into Harvard. It's good if you get into Harvard, though. I'm like, silence is, you know, suddenly. But it's, like, it's good if you get. But it's, there's far more important things. That all I'm trying to, I know I'm not the most eloquent or the most, you know, linear communicator. I'm just hoping somebody says you're right. He really is the only one beautiful. And whatever else I pursue in my life, it's really not worth it. Even our Christianized versions of whatever we think. We need to know him. 
I'm not even doing ministry time today. Okay? Why? Because sometimes we think, well, someone lays hands on me, I'm going to get it. No, 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 you don't get it that way. Like praying for people, that's good. I'm not saying that's a bad thing. But that's not how we get it. You know how you, you, you do this? You make choices. You make decisions. Uh, this idea of, of dying for Christ is not even making a big decision. Like, I'm going to be a martyr! You know, my wife, when we were in Turkey one time with our whole family, my wife, she, she says to me, Honey, you've done a really good job. It was pitch black. I remember so crystal clear. We were laying in bed, and I'm thinking, I'm going to sleep, and my wife starts talking. And, but she says it this way. She goes, You've done a really good job. I'm thinking, Yeah! My wife thinks I've done a good job. She, she's, she's nice. But and so she, I'm like, what do you mean, honey? And she goes, you know, you've done a really good job teaching our missionaries to say the big yes. I'm thinking, what do you mean, honey? And she goes, you know, dying for Jesus. Yes, I'm going to give everything for the sake of Jesus. I'm going to die for his sake. You know, I'm going to give everything, my life up, all these sorts of things. And then she says, and I'm thinking, yeah, I'm awesome. And then she goes, but honey, you haven't done it right. You haven't done, you've done a kind of a bad job on this other. I'm thinking, oh, no, here it comes. She's, but you haven't, you haven't taught, she was talking about our missionaries. You haven't told them that the big yes is preceded by a thousand little yeses every single day. To take up our cross daily. To follow after him in that way. You could give your body to the flames. And without love, it means nothing. You have to love this man. Jesus, you know, not me. (laughs) This man, I mean Jesus every time I said it, just to be clear here. The God man, okay, okay, I think he's clear. So let's just stand together. Oh, Daryl, you get a break, man. Unless you want to come up. Not a ministry time. I'm just going to pray, and then I think it's, we'll go our merry ways. Unless we have a lot more time. Okay. <laughs> just put your hand out, hands out like this, like we're receiving a gift. I'm going to end where I started. I'm going to ask God to give to us that precious gift of a spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of his son. Because more than you making decisions right this minute is that you would see him rightly. Because if we see him for what he's worth, there is no cost. There's no sacrifice. He's worth it. What Stephen talked about yesterday, that man who, yeah, he either made the fish all move to that one spot or created them out of nothing. It's different. He's altogether different. Father, I pray the prayer that Paul prayed for the church of Ephesus. That ancient prayer. We add our yes and amen right now. I pray for the church of New England, for the church represented even in this room, in this place. I ask you for the gift, that precious, singular gift of a spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of your Son. I pray today, Father, that, that Isaiah 53, that root coming up from dry ground, that root of Jesse, that it would spring forth, even in the fertile soil of our own hearts, and that we would see the branch of the Lord as beautiful and glorious. Father, I ask you today, even in... This moment, whether as unspectacular as it might feel, I pray, Father, that you would give us, because we're asking, knowing that if we ask for fish, you're not going to give us a snake, or if we ask for bread, you're not going to give us a stone. Because we're asking, Lord, because we desire this, I ask you for our friends in this room together that you would give to us a spirit of wisdom and revelation. 
in the knowledge of your son. And we pray in your son's name. Amen. Well, we have plenty of time before our next session uh, tonight with Lou Engel. Um, so get some rest if you can. Um, get fueled up with some food, and we'll convene back here at 7 p.m. tonight. Um, you might want to give yourself a little time because we're going to start right on time so that Lou can have as much time as he needs. Um, and so that means worship will probably start right at 7, but also... Um, from our numbers on Eventbrite, we're, uh, we've sold every uh, ticket, and so um, and then a couple more than what we have capacity for. So we're trying to figure out what it's all going to look like. So get here a little early. Get yourself a seat, okay? Other than that, be blessed, and we'll see you at 7. Worship team and sound techs up at the front of the stage please worship team if you're playing tonight we need to meet have a little short meeting also feel free to check out the bookstore the resources that we have available fun missions also um, some of our speakers that are here with us tonight uh, throughout this uh, conference have books and material up there that will fuel and inspire your zeal for Jesus. Brandon and Asaph, Brandon, Asaph.
Praise.